So I'm wondering, does anyone feel hopeful today? It's an exciting time to be in Washington. It's an exciting time to be in America. Every presidential inauguration brings with it a sense of change, a sense of possibility, but this one feels different. Maybe it's the unprecedented traffic expected in the city, booked hotel rooms, the constant coverage on every news station in every paper, the celebrations, the parades, the balls so numerous I have lost track. There is a momentum and anticipation around this inauguration that has permeated the country. And so it should be. It is almost overdone now to call this moment historic. But, you know, that's the word. As we gather together today in our yearly celebration of Martin Luther King, Jr., it's impossible not to draw the parallels, to connect the dots between King's dream and the reality that we see before us. And it is a wonderful reality, friends. To inaugurate a black president, it does feel like a great gift to this country, like the beginning of a new time, the fulfillment of long-held hopes. I have been moved by the accounts of all the people who are coming here to Washington for the inauguration, children of sharecroppers and grandchildren of slaves, leaders of the civil rights movement, African-American mothers who say they can now look at their sons and daughters and tell them they can be whatever they imagine. But here is what I feel nervous about with this wonderful reality that we find ourselves in. That America will look around and see our new president and his beautiful family and say to ourselves, oh, look what we have done. We have an African-American first family. We are led by a biracial man whose father was from Kenya. Just look what we have done. And now, we are done. And there, friends, is the danger. Because we are not done. We are far from done. This is a moment to celebrate, a moment to be proud of. And it is a moment, I think, that must be seen as still the beginning, as asking us to do yet more in the continuing struggle against racism in America. We may be seeing today one realization of Martin Luther King's dream, but so much of that dream still remains unfulfilled. Part of that unfulfilled dream comes from the injustice that continues Racial injustice, but also injustice in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered community. Injustice for women, injustice for the poor, the uninsured, the undocumented. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King wrote, Injustice everywhere, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. 
King is speaking here about why he went from Atlanta to fight against segregation in Birmingham, but his words resonate for us now as we consider the ways that all our lives are linked, all oppressions stemming from the same root, from the belief that some people are less worthy than others, less human than others. And indeed, King's activism spread from civil rights to work against the Vietnam War to the Poor People's Campaign and the fight for economic justice. And so we know that Dr. King would not have been satisfied even to see racism eradicated in America, that he would have celebrated and then turned to the next struggle. He would have kept on fighting. And so in that way, the dream is unfulfilled. But the dream is unfulfilled as it stood, too. Because the truth, of course, is that racism has not been eradicated in America. That we are far from done when we live in a country where many of our public schools suffer from de facto segregation based on busing and neighborhood lines. Or one of my friends from college, an African-American man, used to whistle classical music when he walked on campus at night so that other people on the street would be able to identify him as a student and not a threat. Where while our workplaces may reflect the rich ethnic and cultural tapestry of American life, our friendship circles and our religious communities still rarely do. Where economic disparity can be seen clearly falling along racial lines. Where there are Americans who are fearful or angry about our new president, not because of his politics, but because of the color of his skin. We are not done. But this is not a platform about the fact that racism still exists. If you want to talk more about that, and I hope you do, come see me. And I'd be delighted to share what I've learned with you and to learn from you, to learn from each other. This platform, though, is about the moment where we find ourselves now, a moment that does represent possibility and change, not just because of what Tuesday's inauguration means, but because of what it has already done for America. And that, I think, is to get us talking, to give us a point of reference, an opening into conversation about race and racism. When I was growing up in a liberal family in upstate New York, going to progressive schools, the message I most remember hearing was that we were all the same. I was taught that we should be colorblind, to ignore, look beyond someone's race. I remember some of my first real conversations about race with my Jamaican-American roommate in college. What was revelatory to me about those conversations was not just what we talked about, not just what we shared with each other, but that we were having those conversations at all. Race had been something that one talked about in a whisper, I thought. Something that we polite northern liberals pretended didn't really exist. I think, indeed, that this pretending, this colorblindness, has been one of the real impediments to the continuing movement forward 
of, as King would put it, race relations in this country. President-elect Obama identified a racial stalemate in his March 2008 speech about race as he spoke about anger felt by black Americans and resentment felt by white Americans, feelings that they might never speak aloud to each other, that they kept locked away, pretending, perhaps, that they simply didn't exist. Looking back at Dr. King's speeches and writing, as I have been doing in preparation for this platform, I see that part of the power he held was in his naming injustice, naming racism and bigotry and hate. We know, of course, that he was also an organizer, that he pulled people together and worked hard behind the scenes, that he brought enormous energy and talent to that work. I read Stride Toward Freedom, Dr. King's account of the Montgomery bus boycott for a class on congregational leadership and administration. I thought we would be talking about leadership with that book, but really we talked about administration, about Dr. King's remarkable mind for organization and details and planning. But with all that talent, all that work, it is still his words that we remember most often today. His words that called out the harsh and hateful reality that he saw around him. The truth that America, that white America, was hoping to avoid. Dr. King knew the power of words. He knew the power of truth-telling. In perhaps his most loved, most known speech at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, he spoke about the state of blacks in America 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself an exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. With those words, Martin Luther King made it possible, impossible to ignore the state of the country. Dr. King's words also presented a different reality, the dream of what our country could be. Later in that same speech, he spoke the words that our children can repeat, the words that I first associated with this man and the movement he helped to lead. I have a dream, he told the country. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, 
sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We know these words. They ring in our imagination. And out of those words and others of truth and of hope, of sadness and of possibility, came a movement. There were marches and sit-ins and committees. There were details and planning and arrests and martyrs. But always there were words spoken and sung, words telling the harsh truth and painting the new possibility. And so it is in words, really, that I find hope now. I don't mean in Obama's eloquence, although there is no question that his words have captured the nation's imagination. But I find my best hope in the words that the rest of us are sharing, the words that are suddenly part of the national conversation again. Although the presidential candidates and their campaigns mostly avoided the topic of race, with Obama's March speech as the one notable exception, the commentators did not. And especially in the months since the election, neither have the American people. Suddenly, we seem to be talking again. Talking about race, about what it means, about histories and legacies and possibilities. A New York Times article from just a few days ago pointed to this very phenomenon about what reporter Sarah Kershaw termed a, quote, slight easing of interracial anxiety between blacks and whites. That is because, Kershaw writes, there is now an omnipresent icebreaker, Barack Obama. The article explores the idea that, quote, cross-racial discussion about the topic of race seems to have become more common and somewhat less fraught with the rise of Mr. Obama, according to historians, psychologists, sociologists, and other experts on race relations, as well as a number of blacks and whites interviewed around the country. Those folks who were interviewed recounted conversations at cocktail parties and on the subway with their dearest friends and with total strangers, suddenly free to talk, to listen, to share. And why, you might wonder, does this give me such hope? Well, for one thing, if we find possibility and optimism in talking, then we ethical culturists are in really great shape to lead the movement forward. <laughs> if you have been with us even one week, you know that we are good talkers. But in truth, I think that it's in talking and in listening that we will be able to get past this racial stalemate. It's by telling our stories, our true and full and layered stories, that we begin to see who we really are. The problem with that colorblind attitude that I was taught is that we aren't all the same. We do have different experiences, different interactions with the world, different histories. But those who taught me to be colorblind were well-intentioned. 
They wanted me, I think, not to assume that I understood someone from the color of his skin, not to look at someone and think I knew just who she was. So here's my way now of finding out who someone is. I ask. It's scary to do this. We worry that our words will be misunderstood, that we'll say the wrong thing. And I can guarantee that sometimes we will say the wrong thing. I certainly have. But I can also guarantee that if we stay at the table, if we stay in the conversation, we will eventually come to a richer understanding of our own stories and those of our friends and neighbors. The idea here is not to ignore color, but to go further, to look deeper, to find out from the person herself the many layers of her identity. Sociologists are beginning to talk about race as a social construct, something that doesn't really exist outside of our cultural ideas about it. They point to the fact that the same person might be identified differently in different countries, white in one place, black in another, biracial in still one more. What matters, I think, is not what we see, but how we feel, how we name our identities. When I first started talking about race those days in college, I was so worried about saying the right thing. I always used then the term African-American, which I considered politically correct, until my roommate, who moved to the States from Jamaica when she was 10, pointed out that she was not African-American, that her experience wasn't the African-American experience. She was Caribbean-American or black, she said, and I got just a little more understanding, a little more insight. Now... I use whatever word seems right to me, and I wait or ask to be corrected. As long as we approach each other in good faith, with the hope for more and better understanding, as long as we are open to being corrected, I think the words we use are less important than the intention behind them. We make mistakes. We forgive each other. We try again. We keep talking. And that is where I want to leave us this morning, with an invitation to keep talking, with a sense of immense gratitude for the work that Martin Luther King Jr. inspired, the change he brought to this country, the hearts and the minds that were changed by his example and his words. And with a hope that as we hear those words ringing in our ears, we will hear, too, a call to continue the conversation, to continue the work. In front of the Lincoln Memorial that day in 1963, Dr. King said, There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, When will you be satisfied? We may be proud today, we may be celebrating, we may be hopeful this week, but let us not be satisfied. Let us know that still greater things will come, and let us make them so.